This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of April 3rd, 2023. I don't know why I said that's so weird. <laughs> and we have some Jeopardy to talk about. But first, Emily, how's it going? It's going okay. I went to Washington, D.C. for a few days with my kids who are on spring break. And that was kind of cool. We had a tour of the U.S. Capitol building and we went to the spy museum and we went to the american history museum nice yeah i love the american history museum it's, I such, do a too. Good, it's such a good museum it's a good one yeah yeah it's a good one basically all the smithsonians are good mm -hmm. and the spy museum it is a private institution yeah you have but to it, is, it is very cool i remember i went there gosh this was must have been 10 years ago now yeah it was like the summer before i got married so mm -hmm. 11 years now wow yeah but it was super cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, my husband and I had, we got a babysitter in Washington, D.C. to like hang out with the kids at our hotel. And we had, yeah. we had a little date night. And I was surprised to find as we were figuring out what to do on our date night that Ford's Theater is a working theater mm. by day, <laughs> a national historic site where you can learn about the Lincoln assassination by night, a theater that right now has a musical called Shout, Sister, Shout about the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. So that's what we saw. And okay. yeah, uh, it was very weird <laughs> to be at a musical in Ford's Theater. Mm -hmm. But, you know, hey, you gotta do something. I so. guess, yeah. <laughs> and the musical was good. I didn't know a single thing about this musician, but she had an interesting life. Yeah, neither, neither do I. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm oh, just, I don't know, carrying on, I guess. Very tired. Very yeah. tired. Yeah. That's teacher with two months left, less than two months left in the school year. Less, less than two months, yes. Yay. We yeah. Are, we are approaching and it will happen. We have SAT and state testing next week. So there's that. Fun times. Fun. 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 Yeah. I don't know. Not a lot to report. Mm-hmm. basically just been it. Yeah. How are your video games? Honestly, I have not had a whole lot of time to play in the last couple of weeks. So I am approaching the end of Spiritfarer. And it's a moving game. I like mm. it. <laughs> Things got a little bogged down in the middle with all the management. <laughs> That's how I feel about those games a lot. <laughs> yeah. A couple of times I got kind of stuck and had to kind of look up how to get various resources to figure out, like, you need the gold to make the loom, but you need the fabric to make this foundry, but you need the right. And there's there were all these things where it was like, it felt like a circle of like, I don't have this, so I can't make that, but I don't have that, so I can't make the third thing, but I don't have the third thing, so I can't make the first thing. And like, how do I break in, right? Yeah. So there have been some of those that are kind of tiresome, but 
I've broken through on most of the management stuff and now kind of the plot is moving forward about the like death and like emotional process stuff. The thing you're really there for. In the, yes, that's what I came to this game for. So that part's going okay. And my family is lobbying for me to hurry up and play Breath of the Wild before Breath of the Wild 2 comes out. So I think that <laughs> So you is, can all play it together. Yeah, I think that'll be the next plan. What about you? Thanks. How are video games? Pretty much non-existent. Um, mm, yep. I don't have a lot of time. I do play on the weekends in the morning. I play with my brother Ooh, and we have been playing Baldur's Gate 2, which for those mm. in the know, know that that's like a 20, 25 year old game. Okay. But it's fun and uh, you're able to play it cooperatively. So that's basically what we do when we're uh, chatting on the weekends. So Nice. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I don't, not able to do much more than that right now. So yeah. Anyway, anyway, Jeopardy, Jeopardy. Yes. Let's get into it. On Monday, April 3rd, we have the contestants, Dan Bayer, a college administrator originally from Strasburg, Ohio, Crystal Zhao, a tech consultant from Bloomington, Minnesota, and Sharon Stone, still not an actress, a manager from Round Rock, Texas, <laughs> whose two day cash winning totals $33,600. Joke stays funny. It will remain funny for the rest of this particular episode. And the Jeopardy round categories are President Grover Cleveland's non-consecutive world, horrors, how does it fasten, rocks and minerals, you're gonna sing, and like a bird. Mm. I'm not sure I knew the Pat Benatar song in the you're gonna sing category, but yeah, all the rest of them were very familiar. And uh, yeah. Some favorites of mine in that category. Ooh, nice. Such as? Yeah. I mean... Driver's license. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. Yes. Truth Hurts is great. And Jolene at the $1,000 Jolene, level. of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't don't know that Pat Benatar one either. And neither yeah. did any of the contestants. That's so, true. Yeah. The $200 level of President Grover Cleveland's non-consecutive world police linked this man to the 1888 murders of Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, and several <laughs> others. Dan tried who's the uh, London Ripper, and they would not take that. Yeah, Crystal got the rebound. The, yeah, the London Ripper. Like, no. I mean, not no, but also no. Yeah. I mean, we don't we don't know his name, right? I mean, unless you're into I mean, one of those conspiracy theories. His name is Jack. Yeah, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Middle name V. Yeah. Way back in college, I went on a Jack the Ripper tour when I was in London, and it was very, very silly. And <laughs> was it supposed to be silly, or was it? I mean, it was supposed to, to be, be really like very serious. serious, but there was like a ton of speculative and sensationalist stuff. Mm-hmm. Which was kind of silly, but nevertheless, very enjoyable. <laughs> well, good. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm you know, glad. it sounds sort of sociopathic to be like it was enjoyable, but like. Well, I'm, it's yeah, it's a person we don't know who it was. We don't know details about pretty much anything. It's just mm-hmm. this happened here. Yeah. Here's what we think. Maybe. Yep. Or someone made mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Which really is my favorite kind of history. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Daily Double number one is in Rocks and Minerals at the $1,000 level, and Crystal finds it at pick number 24. She has 4600 with Sharon at 2200 and Dan at 3600 and she wagers 2000 
and gets the clue in 2019 a giant raft of this rock measuring more than 50 square miles was found floating in the pacific near tonga so she can't come up with anything but pumice is what they're looking for so at the end of the jeopardy round sharon's at 3400 crystal at 2600 dan at 5400 and the double jeopardy categories are the superlative earth their lesser known books national heroes common bond cuisine tv and adjective then noun now i take a little bit of issue with the 800 level of tv a 2022 series stars jenna ortega as this goth girls shipped off to nevermore academy as wednesday adams i don't i don't know that wednesday counts as goth I mean, I know her like aesthetic is similar to that, but I don't know. I would need people who identify as goth, I suppose, to weigh in on this. Given that, you know, I don't. I just, mm, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know what I'm saying, other than it just seems like Wednesday Adams is beyond that simple label. You know what I mean? Yeah. In some ways, it feels to me like goth is defined in part by like. It's an aesthetic, but it's also like a like a youthful rebellion thing. Yeah. Because her aesthetic is completely in line with that of her family. Like somehow right. it doesn't feel as goth. Yeah. Like it doesn't quite fit there. I don't know. Yeah. I, just, I, I never I have never thought of Wednesday Adams as goth. I have never put those two together and maybe yeah. it doesn't seem quite to, to jive. Yeah, I hear that. I think you're right. Thank you. Appreciate that. We had some deep dive throwbacks, at least one. I feel like there were more than one here, but right now I'm only finding Joan of Arc, but hey, there's Joan of Arc. We've talked about her. We have talked about her. That is true. Yeah. I was going to say something about Langston Hughes being a deep dive, but we actually haven't done Langston Hughes. Yeah, have we? it's true. I haven't. I don't think you have. Nope. No, yeah. Well, there's C.S. Lewis at the $400 level of their lesser known sure. books, although I did not touch at all on Paralandra. That's true. I think I read that. Did yeah. I, read that? I don't remember. I I, I'm like saying, yeah, as if you definitely have. I have no idea whether you did. I read it way back, yeah. way back, like high school, maybe college. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not that. It's making me think of Roverandum by Tolkien. Oh. Which was his early book it's about a dog that goes to the moon hmm. okay and yeah paralandra rover random they're surprisingly similar sounds for <laughs> having so many syllables i guess i don't know to my mind yeah. maybe that's all it is yeah i guess i guess i see that yeah yeah paralandra is sci-fi space exploration but also has religious overtones shocking or, yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> Kind of shocked, his shocked. kind of kind of his steez, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Daily double number two is in the adjective then noun category. It's pick number 21 at the $1,600 level, and Sharon finds it. She is at eleven thousand four hundred crystals at thirteen thousand, dance at eighty two hundred, good scores all around, and she wagers twenty five hundred and gets the clue. The path to quick success, as in Jones is on it to the top. Make the combo a verb, and it means to speed up a process. That's a weirdly worded question. Yeah. And Sharon guesses what is a fast escalator, but they're looking for a fast track. Hmm. Yeah. Fast track. Yep. And Daily Double number three is at the $2,000 level of National Heroes. And 
Dan finds this one. He's at 10,200 with Sharon at 8,900 and Crystal at 12,600. He wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. A hero of this island nation where he was born, Marcus Garvey, has been proposed to appear on its $100 bill. He tries New Zealand, but they are looking for Jamaica. Jamaica, a little closer to the yeah. US. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Sharon's at 8,900, Crystal's at 11,000, and Dan is at 7,200. They all kind of went down before yeah. finally there. It was a rough end to the round. The final Jeopardy category is 20th century eponyms, and the clue is a 1940 headline about this included failure, liability when it came to offense, and stout hearts no match for tanks. Clearly, none of the contestants listened to our podcast because mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. And I won't be talking about it this week. I definitely won't be picking this one because I already did this one. Yes. I found the other deep dive. <laughs> the other deep <laughs> dive. It's right here. Yes, here it yeah. is. <laughs> Dan wrote something that was in a, illegible mm-hmm. uh, and wagered 5,400. Sharon wrote what is something that she scribbled out. And that was also incorrect. Wagered 5,600. And Crystal wrote what is a rifle? That's incorrect. It's the Maginot Line. The mm-hmm. Maginot Line. 1940. Yes failure i mean yeah it did not keep the germans out but as i talked about in my deep dive that's mostly because the germans decided to ignore belgium's neutrality Mm -hmm. and if they had just tried to go across it actually like through it they probably would have had a pretty rough time Mm -hmm. anyway what that means is crystal is our new champion with 41.99 that's right so on Tuesday, we have the contestants, Amanda bain Wysocki, a social worker from Kansas City, Missouri, Brian Henniger, a guest services agent from La Follette, Tennessee, and Crystal Zhao, a tech consultant from Bloomington, Minnesota, whose one-day cash winnings total 4199 And the Jeopardy round categories are, looks good enough to eat, remember reruns, the world of Middle Earth, goodness and mercy shall follow me, and all the days of my life. That's uh, got a little Psalm 23 mini theme in those categories. Fun. Okay. Show off. Know what to know what psalm that's from. All right, I get it, Emily. I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's, it's yeah, that's it's good to know. I hope I'm not feels like not excessively obscure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm just kidding. Okay, so the $200 clue of looks good enough to eat has like bothered me for a long time until I realized the the actual problem is that people just are totally getting its like meaning wrong. So the clue is, as the saying goes, you can't make this without breaking eggs. And they showed like a, a video or whatever. It's an omelet. Mm-hmm. And I've so often throughout my life, I heard, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs used in the context of like, well, you know, mistakes happen. Yeah, that's not... And it, Yeah, and that's always wrong, right? The real meaning behind that is, is more like, in order to make something good, sometimes you have to undo something else, right? Or you right. have to break something, or it has to, like, you have to get rid of something in order to make something better. Yeah. And that just was never how it was used around me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Now that I think about it, it's kind of a similar expression to the one about you can't have your cake and eat it too. Although, like... As a kid, I never understood that one because to have some cake sounded I mean, like eating yeah. the cake. And to in eat our the vernacular, cake. means the same thing. Yeah. yeah. 
it's intended as like you can't have your cake as a decorative object, right? Right. And and consume it. I feel like there's there's a similarity too, but you're you're totally right. People use the saying about you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. <laughs> yeah, about uh, yeah, about like oh well, mistakes are going to happen. It's like, but yeah. it's not a mistake to break the eggs for an omelet. Yeah, you're breaking them on purpose. To, like, yeah, well, what else are you supposed to yeah. do with them? <laughs> Good luck making an omelet that you didn't do that with. Yep. Mm-hmm. I feel like Crystal is a, a Lord of the Rings fan, but maybe not as much of a Lord of the Rings fan as perhaps she thought she was. And I don't mean to like put her on blast or anything, but because she kept going back to the world of Middle Earth category, but she was incorrect on the 600, didn't give a guess on the 800. She got the 400 and 1000 correct, which is good, but she seemed to specifically go there. And I wondered if she was like thinking that she would do pretty well there. And then perhaps these were a bit more obscure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the 600, this peak is where the ring was forged and the only place where it can be destroyed. Crystal tried what is Mordor and then Brian tried what is Sauron. Mount Doom is the peak, mm-hmm. which I feel like Mordor is the neg bait there. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Mordor is the country. Yeah. That it is in. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one is in the All the Days of My Life category at the $600 level. Pick number 16 in the round. Brian finds it. He is at 1,000. Crystal's at 2,400. Amanda's at 1,000. And he wagers 1,000. He gets the clue. He worked to develop a flu vaccine before coming up with one for polio. Declared safe on April 12th, 1955. And Brian luckily listened to this deep dive because there's no other way he could have known this. But that's Jonas Mm -hmm. Salk. Yeah. The Salk vaccine. Mm-hmm. And as we learned uh, a couple years ago in a tournament of champions, you should also pair that name with Emily. Do you remember the other polio vaccine? Oh, name? no. No, I don't. It's another uh, S. It is it's Sabin. Yeah. Sabin. Remember that mm-hmm. Sabin made the oral vaccine to go along with it. Anyway, yes. Yeah. Pair those names, Salk and Sabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Crystal is at 4,000, Brian is at 4,400, and Amanda's at 3,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are Waterfront Property, Paint Me a Picture, Sports Medicine, Turtles All the Way Down, Tarantino Films, and Odds and Ends, with Odd in quotation mark and End in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. So either one of those will appear in a correct response. Turtles All the Way Down was fun. Yeah. We had a question about Yertle the Turtle. Mm-hmm. We had a question about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. We had a question about a 1775 one-man hand-cranked one of these vessels used by the military called the Turtle, and that's a submarine. There were submarines in 1775. I Well, there was submarine. There, a submarine. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that the history of submarines goes back further than I think, but I keep being surprised. Yeah. Yeah. The, the turtle that, you know, was purely for observation. Mm-hmm. There was, I think the Hunley was in the civil war. Is that what it was? Uh-huh. I, I think that's, it was. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I often think of when I'm like, Oh yeah, there were submarines back then, but there, there were mm-hmm. submarines before the uh, submarine before then. Yeah. At least one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there was one about uh, Greek mythology. Uh, Hermes invented this harp-like instrument using a turtle shell. That's a liar. And there was one about happy together by the turtles. So I don't know. I just, I felt like it was a fun 
range of yeah. turtle questions. Yeah, agreed. That uh, Quentin Tarantino category was fine. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure this isn't the first time that Inglorious Bastards has been a correct response. I feel like the writers are just like, we're going to get the contestants to say bastard on TV. <laughs> 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 we're going to get them. And then the $2,000 clue was uh, Tarantino said this 1997 Pam Greer film only cost $12 million. You can't lose and you don't have to compromise. Can Crystal guess what is Murphy Brown? <laughs> Clearly knowing what the right answer was. <laughs> um, yeah. But that is not it. <laughs> uh, it's Jackie Brown, which uh, Brian got the rebound. Yeah. Ken mentioned that he'd like to see Tarantino's Murphy Brown. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. I guess I would as well. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in Paint Me a Picture at the $1,200 level. And Crystal finds it at pick number 10. She has 4400 with Brian at 9200 and Amanda at 6200 Crystal makes it a true Daily Double. Uh, great move, I think. Mm-hmm. And gets the clue this 17th century masterpiece has been called the Dutch Mona Lisa. And there's an image... And she gets it correct. It is the girl with a pearl earring. Yeah. And daily double number three is in the waterfront property category at the $1,200 level. Pick number 16. Uh, Brian finds this one. He is at 11,200. Crystal's at 9,600. And Amanda is at 6,200. And he wagers 3,800 to get to a nice 15,000. And he gets the clue. Once used as a papal fortress, and today a museum, Castel San Angelo overlooks this river. And he guesses what is the Arno, but it's the Tiber. Mm-hmm. And he's very demonstrably upset about it, mm-hmm. saying that it was it was the other one that he was thinking of. It's like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Tiber is the one that goes just like straight through the heart of Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead with 13,800. Crystal's at 11,600 and Amanda is at 5,400. And the final Jeopardy category is novelists. And the clue is a 2012 book review noted subjects that sparked his ire, capital punishment, big tobacco, and the plight of the unjustly convicted. Amanda tried who is Upton Sinclair. I see what she's thinking in terms of like, Social issues, but I think 2012 right. book review should point you later. Yeah. She's wagered 4,000, so she drops down to 1,400. Crystal tried who is Lewis. I wonder if we have an Upton Sinclair, Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, Lewis mix up. Uh, mix up here. Which everyone does. Uh huh. Uh huh. Which trivia podcast was it that gave me this mnemonic? But Upton is like uptown, like because he's from Chicago. <laughs> Wrote about, wrote about Chicago. I don't know. Anyway, that finally let me link him to the jungle hmm. uh, permanently. So I wonder if, if Crystal was going for Sinclair Lewis, uh, but Sinclair Lewis also is not correct. Crystal's wagered 7201, which drops her down to 4,399. And Brian figured it out. Who is John Grisham? So more contemporary legal themes. Right. That is correct. He's wagered 9,401, which gives him 23,201 and the win. The win. Yeah. He is very emotive. Mm -hmm. He is. He's very dynamic. 
Yep. Uh, so on Wednesday, April 5th, we get the contestants Teresa Browning, a home inspector from Columbus, Ohio. Brandon Broughton, a local history librarian from Ozark, Missouri. And Brian Henniger, a guest services agent from La Follette, Tennessee, whose one-day cash winnings total $23,201. The Jeopardy round categories are Bible books by quotes, scrambled state capitals, three-letter words, in the medicine cabinet, it's national, with national in quotation marks, and TV eats. Mm-hmm. One of the best cold opens in TV history is at the $800 level. Of TV eats on the mm. office. He spilled the beans on making his famous chili, undercook the onions and use ancho chilies. It's Kevin, mm-hmm. Kevin Malone. Yep. And then he spills all the chili and he tries to scoop it up with a clipboard. Classic. <laughs> just classic. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't remember that episode. I'm going to have to go look that one up again. You don't remember. Oh. It's, it's just the cold open because okay. the chili is not mentioned in the rest of the episode. Okay. It doesn't come back up. All right. Uh, but it, yeah, <laughs> It's, it's worth a watch. And, and really, it's not even... I don't know why it's so funny, because it is entirely predictable that he will spill the chili, right? Yeah. He's walking in with this big pot. It's like, oh, okay, first he's going to spill it. And then he's explaining how it's made and all that. And I don't know, but it's just really well done. Yeah. I'm assuming you did okay in the Bible quote category. I did. I did. Yes. The contestants didn't venture guesses on the $800,000 level of Bible books by quotes. So the $800 level was Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And nobody tried that. That's Acts of the Apostles. The mention of Paul might make you think about epistles, but Paul is being spoken about in the third person here, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is narration about Paul. So that should point you toward Acts. Yeah. And the thousand dollar level, Belshazzar, the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. That's Daniel. And I think there's a couple of kings. There's a few kings in Daniel, but like, that's where we have Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar and like those guys. Mm-hmm. The Babylonian um, those, kings. Yeah, the Babylonian kings. Those names should kind of point you toward Daniel. If they come up in other books, Jeopardy would not quote those books to try and get you to... It's not going to be second judges or whatever. Right, like, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's one of those things where like, Emily's brain... Right. It's like, a, maybe there are other books of the Bible with those. It's like when, when Jeopardy like mentions like apocalyptic and I'm like, parts of Daniel are apocalyptic. Parts of Ezekiel mm-hmm. or Apocalypse. No, no, it's always going to be Revelation. It's just Revelation. Um, yep. <laughs> Daily Double number one is in the medicine cabinet at the $800 level, and Brian finds it at pick number 13. He has 3400 with Brandon at 3200 and Teresa at negative 800 and he wagers 1600 and gets the clue. Acidophilus tablets are sold as this type of supplement that increases friendly bacteria in the gut, and he gets it correct. It's a probiotic. Yep. S- so, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian's at 7,800, Brandon's at 4,800, Teresa is in the red at negative 600. And the double Jeopardy categories are School of Music, Double Meanings, Literary Bad Day for the Planet, Lakes and Rivers, Transportation in Various Forms, and The Last Battle. Not the C.S. Lewis novel, just, just Last Battles, of course. I was hoping it would all be like super deep cuts about the C.S. Lewis novel. It it was not. They would not <laughs> give us another one of those deep dive. No. Like on a silver platter. Uh-huh. 
and Teresa kind of struggled through. Yeah, couldn't get anything going. Yep. I felt bad for her. She had a lot of close but not quite kinds of answers. Right. But she knew things like the School of Music $2,000 clue. A member of this Ohio school drama club, he'd get roles on TV and in films, but he's better known for his own brand of honky-tonk. And they showed a picture, and she knew that was Dwight Yoakam. Uh-huh. And I was uh-huh. like, that is impressive. Yep. Good job. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where to begin with that. Yes. Um, she had some really good, you know, good knowledge and good pulls on a lot of things, but just mm-hmm. never turned out. Yep. I was bummed that nobody got the $2,000 clue of double meanings to adhere firmly and closely or to split something along a line. That is to cleave. I like when a word can mean two things that are opposite. Right. And cleave cleave is one of those. Yeah. Yeah. What do you call those heteronyms? Is that what you call that? I think so. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. I can never recognize a singer based on their high school picture or whatever. No, never. never, never. Well, Queen Latifah was at the $400 level and I did manage to get her. I, yeah. Okay. I guess she, yeah. she was kind of recognizable, but no, pretty yeah. much no one else was. And, yeah. and I have a hard enough time recognizing singers when they're like pictures of them on stage, you know, doing yeah. their thing. I'm like, who is that? I don't remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Daily Double number two is in Lakes and Rivers at the $2,000 level. Pick number five in the round, Teresa finds it. She's at 2200 Brian's up at 8600 and Brandon's at 6000 And she waiters 2000 and Gets the clue. This alliterative Swiss body of water is also known as Lac de Quatre Cantons. Cantons. Hmm. Sure. And she guesses what is Lake Geneva. That's not alliterative, but... It is a Swiss lake, mm-hmm. uh, but that's Lake Lucerne. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. answer. Yeah, tough break there. Yeah. And daily double number three is also Teresa's. Uh, she finds it at pick number 17 at the $800 level of transportation in various forms. At this point, she is at 3400 with Brian at 15000 and Brandon at 8000 She wagers 3000 of it and gets a clue. With an air of infinite reluctance, Monsieur Poirot climbed aboard the train in this novel. And she says, what is the Orient Express? That's one of those close but not quite. We're looking for the name of the novel, not of Mm. the transit, the train. Murder on the Orient Express is what we were looking for here. Yeah. She drops down. Yeah. That's really tough because that could have got her, could have got her back in it. She didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, she'd have been in contention with Brandon at least, because by the end of the round, Brian went on a bit of a tear, and he has a lock position at twenty three thousand. Brandon's at ten thousand. Teresa's at four hundred. She managed to get out of the red and make it to final. The category is movies of the eighties, and the clue is based on an off Broadway play with just three characters. It won the Best Picture Oscar, and the actors in all three roles were nominated. This is also a triple stumper. For me, mm-hmm. this is a really uh, tough one. I, I had I wasn't able to. Get I had there. a hard time figuring this one out. Yeah, yeah, I um, didn't get it figured out. Teresa wrote, "What is Glengarry Glen Ross?" That's incorrect. Wagered all four hundred. Brandon wrote, "What is Dinner with Andre?" And wagered ninety two oh one. And Brian also wrote, "What is Glengarry Glen Ross?" But wagered twenty nine ninety nine to not risk his lock. The correct response is Driving Miss Daisy, mm-hmm. which I guess originally only had three folk. Yeah. But Brian holds on because, of course, he was in a lock position. Mm-hmm. 
So on Thursday, the contestants are Cameron Creel, a software engineer from Weehawken, New Jersey, Eliza Haas-Marr, an educator from Portland, Oregon, and Brian Henniger, a guest services agent from La Follette, Tennessee, whose two-day cash winnings total $43,202. And the Jeopardy round categories are word puzzles, ancient cities, at threes and fours, big American landowners, lit pre, and not making it to the end of the movie. Hmm. $200 clue is funny. Tina Fey said gravity was about how this actor would rather float away and die in space than spend time with a woman his own age. That's gravity. Or sorry, that's George Clooney. Uh, Cameron got it. It's mm-hmm. so funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the um, the line graph of the year versus the age of Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend? I don't want to see that graph. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's horrible, but it's also very funny. Yeah. It's like it ticks up as he keeps dating somebody and then it drops right back down to mm-hmm. he dates what like 20 23 24 year old something like that. And then when um, they turn 25 it's Yeah. Or it's too old. Yeah, maybe maybe he starts dating them younger than that. I can't remember. I think he does. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. The word puzzles $800 was a triple stumper. I got so perplexed by it. Yeah, I, I had no idea. The spoken clue was a favorite dinner at my house. And then the word puzzle was the words Gary Capra Garbanzo Pinto. And they were looking for Franks and Beans. <laughs> that is, that, that to me is like a few too many steps to have to yeah. parse out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clever. I like it as a word puzzle. I don't particularly like it as a Jeopardy clue. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the $600 level of ancient cities, circa 330 AD, the city once known as this, got mm-hmm. a new name under new emperor Constantine. Eliza tried what is Istanbul, and then Cameron tried what is Constantinople, and then Brian didn't try, and they were in the right city. But before it was Constantinople, it was Byzantium. That's what they were looking for because the new name was Constantinople. Constantinople. Yeah, so you needed the one before that. Yep. That is nobody's business but the Turks. Daily double number one is further down in that ancient cities category at the $1,000 level. Pick number 18. Uh, Cameron finds it. He's at $1,200. Brian's at $4,200. Eliza's at negative $400. And he bets it all. Gets the clue. Uh, This town, named for a Greek hero, was one of several destroyed by a 79 AD disaster. And he gets it correct with what is Herculaneum, Mm -hmm. which is the the other notable archaeological find other than Pompeii. Yeah. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian is up to 7,000. Eliza's out of the hole at 200, and Cameron is at 2,800. We get the double Jeopardy categories, State of the Art Museum. I mispronounced that. I think it's State of the Art Museum. Yes. (laughs) My brain is not flexible today. Speeches, Latin words and phrases, B. Arthur, Golden Girls, and then there's Maud, M-O-D. Yeah. And B. Arthur was like, B, like the verb. Like the verb to be. To be, yes. It was all about Arthur's. Yep. Poor Brian. Well, 
I guess it's hard to... Sort of. Yeah. Well, sort of. You, you can only feel so bad for a guy who ended up with a $30,000 lock game. Yeah. But we'll get into it in a little bit. But he had an Arthur Miller daily double. But then toward the end of the round, the $800 clue was in the 1920s, he began a successful mail order business to teach ballroom dancing. His dance centers can be found worldwide. And Brian rang in and once again said, who is Arthur Miller? Miller? And then like huge cringe they were looking for arthur murray yeah easy yeah. very easy to, to to get that wrong name coming out of your mouth yep even mm-hmm. though you know what you're thinking about yeah i mentioned these two people the two thousand dollar level of speeches in 1872 this british conservative leader orated about the continuous order the only parent of personal liberty and political right cameron got it that's disraeli and so remember in the 19th century, there were basically two prime ministers in Great Britain, Gladstone and Disraeli. And Disraeli was conservative. Gladstone was liberal. Mm-hmm. And they basically just went back and forth trading the role and also trading yep. insults at each other. Mm-hmm. And I always, always second guess myself on which one is which. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the B. Arthur category at the $2,000 level. Brian finds it at pick number nine. He's at 11,000 with Eliza at 3,800 and Cameron at 4,800 and he wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. Marilyn Monroe was the basis for the character of Maggie in his play After the Fall. And this is the clue I was referencing yeah. earlier. Arthur Miller. Right. Uh, Arthur Miller. He Brian knows this one. Yeah, this is when Arthur Miller is correct. And later, Arthur, yes, before Arthur Miller is incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And Daily Double number three is in the Golden Girls category at the $1,200 level. Pick number 16. And uh, Brian finds this one as well. He's already up to 19,600. Liza's at 2,200. Cameron's at 8,400. Huey 2,400. Gets a clue. At the Winter Olympics in 2018, Anna Gasser of Austria became the first woman to win the big air event in this newer sport. And he gets it correct with what is snowboarding. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Brian has a lock with $30,000. Cameron's at 10,000. Eliza is at 2,200. So we're, we're double locked here. The final jeopardy category is fashion history. And the clue is, these decorative items get their name from their origin in the port city of Strasbourg on the border of France and Germany. And is this our third triple stumper it of the week? It is our third Final Jeopardy triple stumper, yeah. Yeah. Eliza didn't come up with anything. She wrote, what are, and then heart, L. Huh. So, uh, nice shout out to somebody, I guess. She's wagered 2000 That drops her down to 200 Cameron didn't come up with anything. He just has what are and uh, zero wager. And Brian tried water spats. Yeah, that seems yeah, like a okay. reasonable guess, sure. right? I don't, I don't know where they get their name. So you know, they sound vaguely German. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's vaguely German. No other obvious etymology. Like, sure, fine guess, good guess. He wagered five thousand rhinestones. Strasbourg is a port on the Rhine River, and so that is where rhinestones got their name, because they are, 
Yes. I had no idea. I had no, it didn't even cross my mind. Nope, not for a second. I was trying to think of kinds of like jewelry or like shoes. Mm -hmm. I tried to think about like ties and like cravats and like those kinds of things for a little bit and didn't get anywhere. I don't think I would have gotten to rhinestone if I'd had an hour. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, some tough triple stumpers this week so far. Yes, indeed. But hey, lucky for Brian, he was in a locked position. So that gives him his third win with $25,000 for this game. Yep. So on Friday, we have the contestants, Rachel Clark, a director of client strategy from Washington, D.C., Brandy Ash, a personal assistant from Panama City, Florida, and Brian Henniger, a guest services agent from La Follette, Tennessee, whose three-day cash winnings total $68,202. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Norway is famous for Americana, which it's not. It's famous for other things. (laughs) Landing on Planet Franchise, Decomposing, Good E, with the in quotation marks, and Two Shoes. Mm. It's famous for Americana. Yeah. I I don't think that's accurate. No. Never been there, but I don't think mm-hmm. so. <laughs> Not actually related to a clue, but in my frustration about the uh, magical nighttime visitors this week, as we celebrated Easter and also my child lost a tooth, I started playing around with the idea of having my kids spread a rumor in, in their school that Uncle Sam will bring red, white, and blue treats to the patriotic children on Memorial Day. So if anybody wants to join me <laughs> in seeing if we can start a new one, that's that's what I'm thinking about. You didn't want to go for 4th of July? I'm yeah, go for 4th of July Well, you know. <sighs> flag day. Flag day. Could be flag day. Flag day. Flag day. I think that's better. I think mm-hmm. that's better. I yeah. think so too. Go, go for flag day. Let's yeah. Go flag day. All right. Yep. We have our mm-hmm. charge. Mm-hmm. We just need to get some Gen Zers to spread it on TikTok or whatever. A few weeks ago, I was complaining, and this week I've embraced the darkness. That's right. Anyway. Seriously, though, in that, in that Americana category, a 1952 song inserted the into this character's name, but the Forest Service insists. It's just two words. Brian got that one. It's Smokey Bear, who I think appeared as a correct response on our episode. Right, Kyle? Uh, sure. It sounds yeah, I think. good. Also, I know we've talked about Smokey Bear. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. Like, I know that he is Smokey Bear, not Smokey the Bear. But if you're just referring to him by his first name and then clarifying Smokey that he is a bear, right? Bear. You could call him Smokey the Bear, right? Like. Right. He is a bear. I, I'm not, you're right. Sure. His Christian name is Smokey Bear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. Yes. I know we have talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. We had a rough reversal at the $400 level of decomposing. After taking aim at William Tell and then quitting theater entirely at age 37, he quit more than that on November 13th. 1868 and Brian rang in and said who is Giacomo Rossini I don't remember how he pronounced it exactly yeah and that was accepted and then they came back from the break and did like the interview segments uh they told Brian that they had to reverse that because his first name is Joaquino 
something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Giacchino. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very similar names, but not the same. And easy to confuse because Puccini, another Italian opera composer, is named Giacomo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yep. Tough break for Brian there. Yes, indeed. That kind of thing is the reason that it is generally considered safer to go with last name only unless you're confident that a first name is going to be required. Right. Yeah. Just go with Rossini. Yeah. The Norway category, we had a triple stumper that could have fit in the composing category. Or it wasn't mm. about it wasn't about decomposing, but the eight hundred dollar clue, it's great dramatist Henrik Ibsen. And for this composer, whom Ibsen asked to write music for his play, Pierre Gint. Rachel, guess who's Sibelius, but their neighbors. Sibelius is Finnish. Mm-hmm. Edvard Grieg. Edvard Grieg is the one Norwegian composer to know. Yeah. That's where we get In the Hall of the Mountain King. Yes. From Pierre Gint, among other mm-hmm. things. Daily Double number one is in decomposing at the $1,000 level, and Brian finds it. It's pick number eight. He has 3,000 with Brandy at 800 and Rachel at 600. He wagers 1,000 of it only and gets the clue on March 25th, 1918, the sunset on this moonlight composer in Paris. He tries who is Stravinsky. I'm not really sure what connection he's making there, but that's not correct. They are looking for WC. Yeah. Stravinsky is associated with Paris for sure. Yeah. And that might have been the only thing that Mm -hmm. he thought of. I don't know. Um, Stravinsky lived much later than that. Mm. Died in the fifties, sixties. He, he, yeah. yeah, Stravinsky Mm. lived much later, but that that's Claude Debussy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the jeopardy round, Brian's recovered. Well, Uh, he's at 8,000. Brandy's at 2,800. Rachel's at 1,000. And the double jeopardy categories are you totally ruled life and death and literary titles, science, the secret of acronym, Pop culture and animalistic words. Because of The Simpsons, I've remembered the $2,000 clue of animalistic words. Mm. It's triple stumper. Used to describe giraffes and big snakes. It means having net-like markings. And I don't remember anything else about the episode that it was in. All I remember, for some reason, it's stuck in my head. Lisa approaching a chipmunk and saying, hello, Mr. Chipmunk. You're a cute chipmunk. Mm-hmm. You're a northern reticulated chipmunk, aren't you? <laughs> yes, you are. You're so reticulated. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. That just always... <laughs> I've remembered it ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I encountered reticulated giraffes when we were traveling in Kenya. The term reticulated is not used to describe giraffe pattern in general. Mm-hmm. Reticulated giraffes are a particular subspecies of giraffe. Mm. If you look them up, you'll see they have like a distinctive kind of pattern um, that's not exactly the same as the other kinds of giraffes. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're so articulated. (laughs) Yes, you are. So there was this clue about the K in Pakistan is is Pakistan does it come from an acronym maybe the K was for this often contested region and it's Kashmir 
but I just assumed that Pakistan was was just you know, a name. Yeah. Of a was just yeah. I always did too. Are you looking it up? Are you finding anything? Oh, it is composed of letters taken from the names of all of our homelands, Indian and Asian, Punjab, Afghania, Kashmir, Sindh, and Baluchistan. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Cool. Yeah. Coined by Chowdhury Rahmat Ali, a Pakistan movement activist. He added that Pakistan is both a Persian and Urdu word. It means the land of the Paks, the spiritually pure and clean. Huh. Yeah. It's an acronym that also happens to work well. For, yeah. In the in languages setting. spoken there. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Huh. Who knew? Not me. Yeah, really. Me neither. All right. Daily double number two is in You Totally Ruled at the $1,600 level. Pick number 18, Rachel finds it. Uh, she is at 7,000. Brian's at 6,800. Brandy's at 9,600. This is a close game pretty much throughout. She wagers 3,000. Gets the clue. He finally got the crown he craved on July 6, 1483. But just two years later, Henry VII would open the very first Tudor garage. <laughs> Tudor garage. It's not necessary pun there. Uh, this is Richard III. Rachel got it. Yeah, it looked like she was taking a wild guess to me. Like, I thought, I hope she says something rather than nothing. And like, to me, it looked like she was making a choice to say something rather than nothing. I could be reading her wrong. Maybe she knew it, knew it. Yeah, but, um, but it looked to me like a Hail Mary and it and mm-hmm. it worked out, you know? Yeah. And Daily Double number three is in science at the $1,600 level. And Brian finds this one at pick number 24. He... Wagers 4,000 of his 8,000. He is in third at this point. Brandy's yeah. at 10,000 and Rachel is at 11,200. Uh, so he's looking to take the lead. He gets the clue. Fireworks went off July 4th, 2012 with the announcement of a boson consistent with the predictions of this British particle physicist. And you can see that he knows it and uh, mm-hmm. correctly responds, who is Higgs? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead, 15,200. Brandy's at 10,000. Rachel's at 12,000. These are good scores. Brian is not in his, you know, big lockout position. And we get the final Jeopardy category, geography, and the clue. Of the 13 nations through which the equator passes, it's the only one whose coastline borders the Caribbean Sea. And this was another triple stumper. Brandy wrote, what is Venezuela? But the southern end of Venezuela is still a bit north of the equator. Ken says between 50 and 100 miles. Rachel wrote, what is Ecuador? And yes, the equator does go through Ecuador, but Ecuador doesn't touch the Caribbean. And Brian wrote, what is Brazil? I don't believe Brazil touches the Caribbean either. The correct answer is Colombia. Mm-hmm. Which is right there. So, Brandy wagered 4,000. She drops to 6,000. Rachel wagered 5,500 and drops to 6,500. This seems like a pretty, pretty savvy bet. I think she did her math right. Mm-hmm. Because Brian wagered 8,800, which was a cover bet, sort of. Oh. 
It would have been a lock tie. W- yeah, that's a wager to tie. Or, yeah, it was a wager to tie. Probably accidental, right? Or, I would think. you know, I don't think that he's thinking it, they're going to go to a tie. Right. But probably safest to throw an extra dollar on there. Yeah. But either way, Rachel ends up $100 above Brian and wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the week. And this is when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to find the quiz questions. Most most weeks, we put them up uh, after we're recording, before the episode comes out, so you can preview I them. I forgot last week. Sorry. Uh, it happens. <laughs> I have forgotten a number of times that I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you can get those. And I don't know. Feel free to use those questions if you need to come up with trivia questions. I don't care about copyright, like whatever. Mm -hmm. If you think they're good, you can go ahead and use them. We may, in fact, get other exclusive content up there as well. So if you want some rewards for supporting us, there you go. The, of course, most important reward is, of course, the the good feeling of knowing that you are helping keep our podcast going, Mm -hmm. uh, paying for those various costs that, of course, we have. And if you want to direct your money towards something more important than our podcast. Uh, We have given you some options in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So Emily. Yes. Kyle. There was a lot of options this week. There were. Now here's the tricky thing. We had four final Jeopardy triple stumpers. Four. Four. And then, and then that fifth day, Brian was the only one to get it right. Right. Of the 15 possible responses, only one was right. Yeah. So our final Jeopardy triple stumpers were Columbia, Driving Miss Daisy, Rhinestones, and the Maginot line. And you've already done the Maginot line, so we can take that one off the table. And so my question here that I'm asking myself is, do I just put those other three forward as my guesses on the assumption that you would go with a missed final Jeopardy? Or do I start heading towards some of the other missed clues that seem more your style or like they would lend themselves to a deep dive better. That is so the question, I think, isn't it? I think I'm going to take rhinestones out of contention. I could picture you doing a deep dive on driving Miss Daisy or Columbia. So I'm going to start by guessing Columbia. It is not Columbia. Okay. I'm going to guess driving Miss Daisy. It is also not driving Miss Daisy. Uh-huh. I'm second guessing myself about rhinestones now. All right. I've got a couple of Miss Daily Doubles that I thought might appeal to you. Mm, I shouldn't say them both and see if I can get a reaction. I should just <laughs> pick <laughs> I'm going to guess Murder on the Orient Express. It is not Murder on the Orient Express. I did consider it. I did consider the, the missed Final Jeopardies, but like rhinestones, I was like, there's no way I'm going to. I have negative interest in talking about rhinestones in general, <laughs> and I definitely don't want to look into it as like, yeah. how would I, how would I make a deep dive? Yeah. Uh, driving Miss Daisy, I looked at, but I was like, there's not a ton here other than just like, like mm-hmm. here, here's a plot summary and like, yep, whatever. So I, I didn't think that that would be, you know, that, that yeah, was really I feel like it's for. a movie that it hasn't really stood the test of time. I think I feel like it is kind of fading from i don't know i yeah I just, it, like yeah. it was it was fine it's you know the play is fine <laughs> it's fine yeah. right yeah it, mm-hmm. it to- tells them you know a good story of you know people learning to appreciate each other and all that um mm-hmm. 
So what we are talking about. It's not WC, is it? It's not WC. No. Okay. That was, I, that, that was the one that I was deliberating. Mm-hmm. That was about. close. Yeah. Uh, this one was a clue that I was like, huh, interesting. I truly had no context for and felt that it would be a thing that I haven't done in a while. So this is from the Monday game, the superlative Earth category at the $800 level. Oddly, the highest point on this continent is a mount named for a Polish patriot who fought in the American Revolution. Dan guessed what is Antarctica, which is a good guess. Crystal guessed mm-hmm. what is Europe. That is Australia. Mm. Mount Kosciusko. Kosciusko. I'm not great with Polish pronunciation, but I think it's that's what it's about. So it made me realize that I've talked a lot about or mentioned a lot. We should know, you know, just take some time to learn Australian geography, just like we should learn Canadian geography and really geography of anywhere else. So this deep dive is simply going to be not super deep, but pretty wide because it's going to generally be like the geography of Australia. Okay. Physical and political. So we're going to talk about Australia. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so I'm going to start with kind of the physical geography. Australia, of course, as we hopefully understand, I, I, I hope I don't have to give too much context for what Australia is, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it is in the South Pacific. It is a continent in some ways. Uh, more modern interpretation views it as part of a larger oceanic continent rather than simply the landmass itself. But either way, the main Australian continental landmass consists of six distinct landform divisions. They are the Eastern Highlands, which include the Great Dividing Range, the Brigalow Belt strip of grassland behind the East Coast and Eastern Uplands. There is the Eastern Alluvial Plains and Lowlands, which uh, includes the Murray-Darling Basin. That's uh, a river system. There's the South Australian Highlands, which includes the Flinders Range, the Eyre Peninsula, and York Peninsula. There's the Western Plateau, the Central Deserts, and the Northern Plateau and Basins, including the top end. So that's like the general, you know, regions. As we know, there's the Outback, which covers the vast majority of the continent, or what is often referred to as the bush. Uh, But there are also, you know, white sand beaches on the coast and various different climates in different parts of Australia. And um, it also, Australia, of course, includes the island of Tasmania and a number of other islands, which I will get to shortly. A couple of physical geographic things to note, like the Jeopardy clue stated, its highest point is Mount Kosciusko in New South Wales. At a height of 7,310 feet, which is cute. Mm. You know, that's a yeah. That's that's a cute little mountain there, 7,300 feet. That's, that's cute. That's nice. Oh, <laughs> oh, I have real mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you got the Rockies out your window, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just the way it goes. Uh, the lowest natural point is in Katitanda, or Lake Eyre, in South Australia, which is 49 feet below sea level. Now, if we're including the Australian Antarctic Territory, of course, the lowest point would be Deep Lake in the Vestfold Hills at a negative 164 feet. And some important river systems, or rivers to know, are 
the Murray River, which is the longest river in Australia. It is 2,375 kilometers or 1,476 miles. Then there's the Murrumbidgee River. That's 1,485 kilometers or 923 miles. The Darling River at 1,472 kilometers or 915 miles. And those are, those are the top three. All three of them are kind of part of the Murray-Darling system. There's also the Lachlan River at 1,448 kilometers and 900 miles. And the Warrego River at 1380 kilometers and 857 miles. Those are all part of the Murray-Darling uh, system. So uh, this is all in New South Wales and the southern regions. Like They, they kind of branch out in New South Wales. They go through part of South Australia and part of Queensland. But it's all, it's all this kind of more lush, more verdant area in the southeastern part of Australia. And it is notable that all of these major rivers are in one spot because you get to the outback and there's not quite so much when it comes to rivers or really any kind of hydrology uh, in that region. Uh, it gets pretty barren and pretty hot. For instance, in South Australia... They count the Murray River, but only 700 miles of it is there, you know. Anyway, those are the main rivers to know about. The Murray is really the big one. Murrumbidgee sounds really Australian, so maybe you'd hear that in, in you know, trivia. And the Darling. So those are rivers, some mountains. Of course, another famous geological... What am I thinking of? Structure? No, it's not a structure. Geological thing. What's the word I'm looking for? Is uh, Ayers Rock or Uluru, as it's more commonly known now, that is found in the center of Australia. It's in the southern part of the Northern Territory, about 200 miles southwest of the city of Alice Springs. Uh, it's sacred to the Pichantachara, who are the Aboriginal people of the area, and they're also known as the Anangu. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Also, mm -hmm. this isn't a deep dive on Uluru, so I'm just mentioning it, right? And of course, there's also the Great Barrier Reef, which is, of course, in the Pacific Ocean. It stretches for over 2,300 miles or kilometers or 1,400 miles. Um, it's located in the Coral Sea off the coast of Queensland. It is also uh, a World Heritage Site. And in terrible, terrible shape. Mm. Um, but again, this is not a deep dive on the Great Barrier Reef either. So I'm just mentioning it. That's off the northeast coast of Australia in the Coral Sea. Uh, so those are some quick reminders of geological formations and, and things. Uh, and now we'll talk about the political geography of Australia. It is comprised of states and territories ruled by regional governments, and there is a federal government that oversees it all. Uh, there are six federated states and 10 federal territories, three of which are internal territories and seven are external territories. If we try to try to picture Australia, because I know like obviously this is an audio medium, so it's hard to like point to a map. If we picture like the mainland of, of Australia, there are the six states on that mainland. And if we start at kind of the 12 o'clock position, so like center north, I'm going to go clockwise. Okay. So that maybe that helps like orient things. So 12 o'clock position, center north, 
is the Northern Territory. So it's not one of the states. It is the Northern Territory. Uh, its capital is Darwin. It is not particularly dense. In fact, it has a population density of 0.18 per square kilometer. <laughs> 0.18 person per square kilometer in the Northern Territory. Hmm. Yeah. Its total population is 250,000 people. Uh, so that's center north. If we go clockwise, the next place is Queensland, which is a state. Its capital is Brisbane. Continuing around the clock uh, at kind of the 4 430 position is New South Wales. New South Wales is the most populous state. Uh, its capital is Sydney. Moving along from there, south of New South Wales, kind of due south. So if we're looking at like a five o'clock position, we have the state of Victoria. Victoria's capital is Melbourne. And it is the second most populous state, even though it is uh, the smallest of these, you know, states and territories. Well, I shouldn't say it's the smallest state on the on the mainland. Continuing on due south, so six o'clock position, we have South Australia, which is a state and its capital is Adelaide. And then the last part is basically the <laughs> the entire Western 40% of the continent, and that is Western Australia, uh, which is also a state and its capital is Perth. Mm -hmm. So I've named five of the six states. The sixth state is Tasmania. It is an island and it is due south of Victoria, and its capital is Hobart. So those are, those are the six states, and I've named the Northern Territory. There are two other much smaller territories that are on the mainland. One is the Australian Capital Territory, which has the national capital of Canberra, which, much in the way that we have the District of Columbia to house our national capital, they determined that it would be better to create a separate uh, state or territory in which the national capital would be. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Jervis Bay Territory. It is on the coast of New South Wales. It is 67 square kilometers, and 405 people live in it. Why is Jervis Bay a thing? <laughs> it was created in order to give the landlocked Australian capital territory access to the sea. Okay. And there we go. So those are the mainland areas. There are, like I said, seven other external territories of Australia. The big one is, of course, the Australian Antarctic Territory. So Australia owns a significant portion of Antarctica. It has a population of 60 people and an area of nearly 6 million square kilometers, which gives it a population density of 0. 0.00001102. Uh, <laughs> hmm. So there we go. But yeah, it has no capital, believe it or not, um, although it does have Davis Station uh, as the permanent base of research. So that's, I guess, Antarctica isn't actually an island. But the other ones, there's Norfolk Island, it is in the Pacific Ocean between New Zealand and New Caledonia, 877 miles directly east of Australia's Evans Head. Its capital is Kingston, and it is 35 square kilometers with a population of 2,600 people. There's also Christmas Island, which is officially the territory of Christmas Island. Uh, it's in the Indian Ocean, 
about 350 kilometers south of Java and Sumatra. So it's much closer to Indonesia than it is to Australia. It's about 1,500 kilometers away from the Australian mainland. Uh, Its capital is Flying Fish Cove, which is simply known as The Settlement, which is where uh, the majority of the people on the island live. The first European to sight the island was Richard Rowe of the Thomas in 1615, and Captain William Miners named it on Christmas Day, which is why it is Christmas Island. There's also Cocos, or the Keeling Islands. Uh, Its capital is simply the West Island. It is 14 square kilometers with 547 people uh, living in it. It is also in the Indian Ocean, pretty far east. It is approximately midway between Australia and Sri Lanka, which is pretty far. Yeah. Uh, It consists of two atolls made up of 27 coral islands, of which only two are inhabited, the West Island and Home Island. The people who live there are mostly ethnically uh, Cocos Malays, and they practice, apparently, Sunni Islam Hmm. and speak a dialect of Malay. So that's the Cocos Islands or Keeling Islands. There's a Coral Sea Islands. Uh, It has no capital because as of June 2018, its population is four people. Four. Uh, (laughs) Not... Hmm. Nothing more than that. Its territory covers over 780,000 square kilometers, most of which is ocean, of course. And there's not a ton more to say about it. The islands were mined for guano, but there's no reliable freshwater supply, so long-term inhabitation doesn't really make any sense. There's the Ashmore and Cartier Islands. It is also uninhabited. Yeah. Zero official population. Uh, It is technically belongs to Australia. It consists of four low-lying tropical islands and two separate reefs and the 12 nautical mile territorial sea generated by the islands. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) And uh, and then the last one is the Heard Island and McDonald Islands, which are uh, a single territory. They also have no capital because they have no population. It is a volcanic group of mostly barren Antarctic islands, uh, so it is basically between Australia and Antarctica. It's also about two-thirds of the way from Madagascar to Antarctica, so we're getting pretty far out there, away from Australia. And yeah, that's <laughs> these little islands, there's not a lot to say. There's They're geologically interesting. Um mm-hmm. If you're a scientist and you want to go study the things on small islands, you can go do that. But overall, like historically, they're not particularly significant. So I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. Because that covered the geography. We went through the different regions. I named the named the capitals. I mean, there are other cities, of course, in Australia, but the capitals, for the most part, are kind of the most notable and most populous of the cities throughout Australia. The the majority of the population lives in the eastern half of the continent, right? Especially in New South Wales and Victoria. That's the southeastern uh, region. That is, I mean, those two states comprise 15 million people, and that's more than half the population 
in just those two states alone. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned with the rivers, though, that's also where the uh, Marie Darling Basin is and the river system. So it makes sense. It's the most habitable place. So there you go. That's a little bit about the geography of Australia. Yeah, cool. This was helpful because Australian geography is one of those things that I know I should take some time and learn better, but I hadn't really done it. So taking yeah. some time to do it now, I think was a uh, helpful for trivia and hopefully helpful for, I don't know, life knowing things about the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember I learned it was one of the many maps that I went over for the Tournament of Champions, and then I didn't think about it for a while. Mm, and I yeah. was like, ah, oh, I should get back to this because oh, yes. I've forgotten all that. Mm-hmm. All right, so are you ready for a quiz? Uh, yes. Okay, this quiz is simply about Australian things. So the first three questions here kind of follow a theme, but not, I mean, sort of. You'll, it's, you'll see the theme. All right, question one. During the First World War, the Allies sought to strike a blow against the Ottoman Empire by capturing the Dardanelles, which would secure the Suez Canal and expose Constantinople to Allied bombardment. Like the rest of the war, it was a grinding, costly affair for both sides. Because of the significant contribution of Australian and New Zealand soldiers, April 25th was established as Anzac Day, commemorating military casualties and veterans from those countries. What was the name of that campaign? from the First World War. Oh, no. I'll tell you it was named for the peninsula where they landed. And there was a 1981 film made in Australia, which starred a young Mel Gibson. Hmm. I'm trying to even come up with a feasible guess because I am crummy at military history anyway. But then I'm especially bad at World War One. I. I don't think I have a guess. Yeah, I'm going to pass. Sorry. Okay. That's Gallipoli. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. It was an allied invasion to seize the straits and take control of the Mediterranean. Keep Someday I'll learn World uh, War One better. <laughs> Once you said Gallipoli, I was like, oh, yeah. Yep. I remember that it's a term yeah as a thing that i should as a term as a thing that i should get my head around at some point um yeah 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 extremely costly um however because the allies did not succeed in what they were trying to do it was hailed as a pretty as a big victory for the ottomans which actually kamal ataturk was one of the commanders of the turkish forces mm-hmm. at gallipoli and his success there kind of helped him become the leader for Turkish uh, independence Mm. not too many years later. That was, I'm sure, the hardest one. Put that first to get out of the way. All right, question two. Speaking of World War I, due to disrupted British imports after World War I, the Australian company Fred Walker & Company hired Cyril Callister with the charge of developing a spread from the used yeast being dumped by breweries. Eventually, the Kraft Foods Company came to own the product, which is kosher, halal, vegan, and a good source of B vitamins. What acquired taste is that product? All right. It is either Marmite or Vegemite. And I think that one of those is more associated with Australia, and the other one 
isn't. So far, you are correct. All right. I think that Marmite is more associated with the UK and that Vegemite is more associated with Australia. I'm not super confident, but I'm going to go with Vegemite. And that is a good choice. It is Vegemite. Yay! Because Marmite was no longer consistently imported after mm-hmm. World War I. Uh, and so Fred Walker and company was like, we need a yeast <laughs> extract <laughs> spread. <laughs> so we need to come up with it ourselves. <laughs> and, and thus Vegemite was created. <laughs> Uh, it is it is such a weird thing to feel like you need to replace i you, i yeah whatever i don't know but yes marmite is british and yeah. that's that's mm-hmm. where that is nice all right you're on the board with 10 points yeah question three many soldiers who returned to australia after world war one were given parcels of land in western australia to farm these new farmers were impacted first by the great depression of the 1920s And then in 1932, by an entirely different problem, their farms were invaded and ravaged. The government was petitioned and military personnel were dispatched with Lewis model machine guns. By the end of the conflict, it was estimated that about 3,500 of the invading bipeds had been killed. Conservationists in the UK and elsewhere condemned this short-lived war, which pitted the Australian military against what? I was... Pretty sure I knew what it was, although I kept remembering that there's an Australian movie. Hopefully, this isn't a quiz question later, or maybe hopefully it is called Rabbit Proof Fence. And so, like, there was part of me that was like rabbits, but then you said bipeds, and that solidified my guess, which is kangaroos. I am sorry. Oh no! It is the Emu War. It's the Emu. Oh no! Ah, of course it's the Emu War. Now, hang on. Do emus count as bipeds? I think they do. I think they do. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I remembered that there was like a war against an Australian animal. Mm -hmm, They are, yes. And somehow my brain turned it into kangaroos. It's the emu war. It is. It is the emu war. Yes. Um, Face palm. (laughs) I'm I'm so sorry. I have to say it out loud because you can't see me doing it. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) I mean, part of the issue was the emus were busting through fences and allowing rabbits and other things into the into their fields and just like decimating the wheat crop um, that the government had been like, we'll pay you subsidies to farm wheat because it's the depression. And then they didn't pay those subsidies anyway. Yeah. Kangaroos are brutal though. I would not want to fight a war against them either. No, I mean, kangaroos will knock you out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, apparently emus are really good at taking bullets and and, like (laughs) the, it was estimated that it took, according to the like the commander at the end of it, the number of like confirmed emu casualties was like 986. And they had calculated that they used 9,860 bullets. So an emu takes 10 bullets to kill, apparently. That's why uh, was their conclusion. Huh. Um, and then and then some some estimate about another like twenty five hundred died of their injuries later or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, the coal was not super successful. Really, emus are still a major problem for farmers for a long time. Uh, now, I don't think they are now. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, the emu war. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah, I I had heard of the emu war and somehow just made it the kangaroo war. So yeah. mm, I'll have it next time. You know, I don't know if it if it's just because they're mammals, but it feels like a, the kangaroo war would be much more tragic. Yeah. Than just like shooting birds, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, all right, question four. This is no longer about, like, related to World War One. Okay. The the Adelaide Crows, Collingwood Magpies, Hawthorne Hawks, and Sydney Swans are not list items for birders down under, but rather teams that engage in what popular Australian contact sport played on an ovular pitch? I mean, we know that my games and sports score <laughs> is mortifying. The phrase Australian rules football is coming to mind and I don't see any particular reason it doesn't fit. So that'll be my guess. That's good because it's Australian rules football. Also known as footy. Yeah. They play on an ovular playing field, which I find interesting. I'm not going to go through its rules. It is an interesting thing. I don't want to compare it to rugby because rugby is different in a number of notable ways. It's definitely not like American football. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in its own ways, but it's interesting. It's uh, yeah. Check it out if you have time. All right. Uh, all right. So you have twenty points. Question five. Oh, this one also might be hard. I realize. <laughs> uh, it's okay. The eighteen seventies saw the rise and fall of Australia's most notorious criminal. He was a bush ranger who led a gang of outlaws in Victoria. He is regarded as either a noble Robin Hood like figure or just a murderous thief. He has been portrayed in film by Heath Ledger and Mick Jagger and was the subject of the first dramatic feature-length film from 1906. Who is that Australian real-life legend? I will add of Irish descent, if that helps. I know that I've heard of him, and I'm having a hard time remembering his name. Of Irish descent. Wait. There's a name that's coming to mind, and I'm worried that it's just some other, like, <laughs> Irish name that I've heard. <laughs> Do you need a full name? No, I'll take the last name. Last name Kelly. Yeah, I'll take that. Ned Kelly. Ned Kelly was the name that I had in mind, yes. and I was like, let's just guess the last name only in case I'm wrong Absolutely. about the first name. Absolutely, yeah. yep. The, the, like, famous sort of image of him is in his last confrontation with the police, him and his gang put on, like, armor. They wore, like, full iron armor to protect themselves from gunshots. And it's just, like, the movie portrays it differently. It shows him, like, walking down a railroad or something. And, like, but whatever. It was a confrontation at a hotel. But he had this, like, suit of armor that's on display in museum now. Anyway, yeah, that's Ned Kelly. Nice. All right, you're at 30 points, right? Yeah. Yes, 30 points. And the final category is gone too soon. Huh. I'm not feeling super confident with that category. I was like, if it's children's television, I'm wagering everything. (laughs) I can't believe I didn't put a bluey question in here. I can't believe you didn't put a bluey question in here. I'll wager 20 points. Okay. Now I I just want to kind of give it to you because I I messed up so bad. (laughs) All right. Um, For a total of 50. John Travolta recently gave a heartfelt introduction to the In Memoriam section of the Academy Awards. The first person honored was what British-born but Australia-claimed singer and actress, one of the best-selling artists of all time. 
I am assuming that this is Olivia Newton-John. It is Olivia Newton-John, who apparently was born in the UK. Huh. And simply made her career in Australia. But I think she embraced her. I mean, she had Australian citizenship and like, yeah, Australia mm-hmm. claims her as well. So, yeah. All right. Well, you got it. You got 50 points. Yay. That's not bad for a trickier quiz. A trickier quiz. And I didn't figure out the deep dive topic. Yeah. That first 10 points really helps. Yeah, it does. It gets the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, this was very fun as always. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about us. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quick.